if he can do it or she can do it, I can do it. And that, that is so simple to me, but it really reminds me. It's like every single person that has achieved anything has a story about when they started and they were just like you and they went through a process and, and they got to where they are. Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Shane Sorensen, the author of the new book, Renaissance Wisdom, How to Flourish in the Modern Day. Shane is a self-taught philosopher, avid fitness enthusiast, Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, and someone with a deep passion for wisdom. You can learn more about Shane at renaissance-wisdom.com. In the conversation, Shane and I discuss the Renaissance period, flourishing versus happiness, overcoming self-limiting beliefs, the middle way, meditating on mortality, wisdom in daily life, and much more. I really enjoyed the conversation and hope you do as well. Without any further delay, Please welcome the wise and gracious Shane Sorensen. Well, Shane, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thanks for coming on, man. Hey, no problem. Thanks, thanks for having me on. I'm glad we could uh, finally make it happen. Well, it's a pleasure. And today we're going to be talking about your new book, Renaissance Wisdom, how to flourish in the modern modern day, which I'm excited about. Uh, but we usually start with a question around how did you first come to to find philosophy? Cool. That's a that's a good that's a that's a good one. It's going to be a fun one to talk about. Um, originally, I got into philosophy uh, in, as a search for God. Really, um, that that was kind of the beginning of my my philosophy journey. I had had a little bit of exposure to stoicism. Like I had read some, um, couple books by Ryan holiday and I had had some very, very light exposure to the stoics. Um, and it, it was a really inspiring set of kind of like ideas and philosophies that I was exposed to in that way. And I saw a lot of wisdom and a lot of potency in the, in the works that I had read. And I kind of thought that maybe philosophy could, could lead me to, spirituality or, you know, just, just to kind of like a, a knowledge of God. And I, I spent a lot of time researching Christianity um, in particular. And I read books by atheists that had converted into Christians. I read books by Christians who had converted into atheists. And it was like, I would read one book that was kind of pro-Christianity and another book that was maybe you know, not, I wouldn't say anti-Christianity, but would kind of like pick apart Christianity um, in a, just like in a logical way, not a a hateful way. And um, the more I researched, I kind of came to this conclusion of like, there's so much information available and there's such a compelling argument for both sides that it's like really, I kind of came to this realization that maybe there is not one set way. And there's all of this information. You just kind of have to do your best to take a leap of faith based on the best that you could do. And I kind of felt like either belief was reasonable. And that caused me to start kind of looking into philosophy more to try to find truth. And then I sort of found the same thing in philosophy, that the more I dug down, the more it, it was hard to find like one kind of set way Um and I guess, I mean, that that's kind of my journey. It's just I, once I started questioning, once I started trying to find new perspectives and ways of looking at the world, I just I, I just couldn't stop. And I, I still can't stop. <laughs> when did, was there a particular moment, anything that comes to mind that started these perennial questions that for some reason, some of us can be, um, you know, spend our, our lives wrestling with? I can't, you know, I can't really think of a particular like genesis of all of it. It's, it's something that I just remember being like, even as a teenager, 
I was like a little different. I was a little more curious. I, I guess maybe it's like that, that curiosity I think is where it starts for a lot of people. You know, some people are just kind of content to just kind of like live in the moment and go through life. And there, there's like value in that as well, but it can also be a hindrance if you never really stop to think more deeply about things or never stop to question or like, I don't know if there's just, if there's not that spirit of curiosity in you. And I guess that I, I've always had that spirit, spirit of curiosity. Like even as a kid, I had a hard time with math because the instructors would say, like my math teachers would tell me, well, just, you just need to memorize the formulas. And I'm like, but, but why? Like, I need to understand why they work. Like, don't tell me just to memorize them. I want to know like why they work. Um, and I don't know that sometimes it can be a hindrance to you. I, I think like the, the insistence to understand instead of just to do, but um, I don't know. That's just, it's a, it's a character trait that I think I've always had. Let me ask a, a curiosity question that I have something I've thought about and, and don't quite know the answer if someone asked me, so I'll, I'll throw it to you. How does your book or maybe other philosophy books differ from say a traditional self-help book that someone might pick up? Um, so I started before I got into my philosophy journey, I started on a self-improvement journey and I guess maybe that's, maybe that is kind of the genesis of it. So I'll, I'll have to kind of backtrack a little bit, but when I was 16, 17, 18, 19, um, I was a very passionate kid, kind of like an emo kid. I used to write poetry every girlfriend that I had broke my heart and I would spend, you know, two weeks in the dark writing sad poetry and crying. And, um, I had a really, I had that like starving artist kind of mentality. And there were a couple books that helped me snap out of that. Um, one that I read that really helped me was, uh, the power of now by Eckhart Tolle. And he talks about this idea of the pain body. And so, he says that we kind of have this like ball of pain and trauma that we carry around with us. And this like ball of pain and trauma that we carry around becomes like a physical body to us. It's like a thing that we hold on to. It gives us comfort. It gives us a sense of identity. And that really spoke to me. And it kind of like made me realize that I had a pain body that, that I was very much like identifying with my suffering and identifying with, you know, the pain that I was going through. And I, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, it just, you, you make it into a much bigger deal than what it should be. You know, I'm like a 18 year old kid that's healthy in like the, one of the most like wealthy countries in the world. And it's like, I'm, I think the world is ending because, you know, my, my 19 year old crush just, you know, just broke my heart. So, um, I got into self-improvement after that. And I, I really spent a lot of time going through that and I got way too far on the positive thinking like spectrum. And it, it was like, it, it was helpful for me because I learned to reprogram negative thoughts. Like if I had a thought, like, you know, I'm, I'm not good enough or, you know, I'm, I'm so ha I'm so sad or like any, any kind of like negative limiting belief. I kind of trained myself over time to try to be conscious of those thoughts and replace them with more beneficial thoughts or, or just to kind of silence them. And, um, that, like I said, it took me too far to the extreme. I was to the point where I was just like, I was that young, passionate, like 19 year old kid. And I'm like, I'm going to change the world. You can do anything. Like, just believe in yourself. Like, and it wasn't really built on any kind of, um, substance I think is, is the thing. There was really nothing backing it up. It was kind of like I had literally brainwashed myself. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's where philosophy is different is it's not a bunch of mantras that you just repeat your, to yourself until you believe it. It's not fake it till you make it. It's like you, you read these works, you read the history, you understand these deeper kind of philosophical systems, and you can pick pieces of them and kind of integrate them into your life as like a deeper underlying belief. So it's not like a habit or like a hack that you're putting into your mental space. It is it is an understanding and a belief that causes you to act differently, right? It's like, here's, here's like the best way I think I can maybe put it is 
sometimes like the positive thinking stuff is like, imagine that you can only see green and you've only ever been able to see green your entire life. And you read this book and it tells you everything is red. So when you look outside, you see that everything is green still, but you just keep telling yourself everything is red. Everything is red. Everything is red. And you tell yourself enough that you start to believe it, but like you actually kind of still see things green. You just kind of like brainwash yourself into believing philosophy is like, it's kind of like the science or the way that breaks everything down to make you understand that what you're seeing is maybe different than what you're perceiving. It changes your perception so that like at a deeper underlying level, you now see the world differently. Um, and I think that's what I really try to impart in the book is that this book is not like, it's not a hack. You're not supposed to pick up this book and read it and you're a changed person. It's supposed to inspire kind of like some curiosity in you to do some more research, to continue reading, to continue this process of personal evolution. And I, I think that's where I would say it's different. It's like my book is a gateway as opposed to an endpoint. I, I love that answer. I think that's really helpful for the, for the listeners. Um, and it, it reminds me of, you know, as you were talking about that math example, kind of memorization versus a deeper understanding of maybe maybe both sides of a of a particular issue and and wrestling with it it's it's really interesting and i've enjoyed your book um maybe we could start by defining a a couple terms and and give a little intro to it so for anyone that's not familiar with renaissance you know what do you mean by renaissance wisdom when is the renaissance period all that type of stuff sure um we'll do like a little kind of elevator pitch background here on the Renaissance. So um, the Renaissance is a period that lasts from roughly like the 1350s up until kind of like the 1600s, which then, then you kind of like transition into the Enlightenment. Um, for my book, I, I focus specifically on the um, Florentine Renaissance um, that lasted from approximately 1350 to 1490 and very end of the 1400s. Um, and the reason I focus on that period is because that was really the genesis of the Renaissance. Like all the Renaissance movement that kind of came after that, it, it really started. Um, it really started in Florence. It, it really did. There were a couple of things that happened, both you know economically and politically, that kind of made Florence the perfect place for it to happen. But that that is where it happened. Um, and so the Renaissance, like the word Renaissance, comes from a French word. Um, that means rebirth, basically. So the Renaissance was a rebirth of the classical world. So you had a period um, after the fall of Rome in the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, where people had lost contact generally with reading, with stable societies. Um, the world was pretty chaotic and um, not a great place to live in a lot of ways. Um, a lot of the society structure that was provided by Rome had kind of broken apart. So it was, it, it was very much like um, dissected. There, there wasn't a lot of stability for people. And, you know, in, in Florence, you had this special kind of series of events that happened where all of a sudden, like there was this rising merchant class, people were making more money. There were, there were a lot of like banking um, things that happened that kind of caused like a lot of people to generate a lot of wealth off of banking and all this extra money created a stability in society where people could once again start picking up books and they could start reading. And there was a group of people, the humanists, that put a lot of effort into uncovering a lot of lost works, into translating works from Greek, which a lot of people in Florence couldn't read. And they translated them into Latin, which was more accessible for, for the audience there. Um, and that's, I mean, that's basically that, that's the Renaissance, right? Is it was for a long time, people had lost contact with the writings of the ancient world, things, you know, writers like Seneca was a big one, Cicero, Quintilian, um, Plato, Aristotle, and we had kind of collectively lost contact with that. And the, the Renaissance was a re-embracing of that, of that lost culture, of those lost uh, literary pieces and those lost like philosophical works. How did you find your way to having an interest in this Renaissance period? So it started 
as I talked about, I was very heavy into the self-improvement realm for a while. And I had this really cheesy book. Like whenever I I used to run this blog, it was a self-improvement blog. And I would always write like my, the, the most clickbait, like topics I could possibly find, like Mm -hmm. 10 easy hacks to be more effective in day-to-day life, you know, like, and I had this idea for a book that was basically a way to kind of like hack your belief set to become more like someone like Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo, like to become more like a Renaissance man. And over the years, that idea morphed because I started studying philosophy and I started understanding more like the kind of works that these men were exposed to that caused them to have this belief set. And so I guess I became less focused on like their daily actions and more focused on what they believed and what they kind of thought. Um, Cause I think that that's, that's so important, right? Is it's like your actions matter a lot because they shape your trajectory through life. They shape who you become, but it's like your actions are really shaped by your belief set. And I guess that's, that's part of the things, part of the reason why I'm so accept- obsessed with philosophy is it's like, everything you do is based on philosophy. Like that when you get out of bed and you get up and you do certain things like, yes, it's a habit, but it's, it's all based on those, those underlying belief sets. So it makes sense that I want to have the kind of strongest, most robust and beneficial belief set that I can possibly integrate into my life. And, um, you know, that, that's where the book kind of morphed was that it was starting with that kind of cheesy, hack your way into being a Renaissance man. And it just evolved through my love of philosophy into, into what it turned out to be. I couldn't agree more in, in terms of highlighting the point of these views and beliefs that we have, which oftentimes, like, as you say, every, everyone has a philosophy of life. It's just whether, you know, how intentional it is, or maybe how much thought is, is put be put behind it. Um, but let's transition into the book. Uh, I love this chapter towards the end of end of the book. Seek eudaimonia, not happiness. What's the difference here, and and why is that important? So, um, Aristotle was a big believer in uh, eudaimonia, right? That the idea that um, we should kind of seek a place in our lives where we are flourishing. That's, that's basically what eudaimonia means is flourishing. So when I think of flourishing or when we think of flourishing, we typically think of like a plant that usually like you wouldn't, I feel like in, in day-to-day use, we don't typically say that that human being or that person is flourishing. We would say like, Oh, they're doing, they're doing excellent or whatever. Um, but when you think of a plant, when you think of this, like, bush or this rose or this flower that's growing up it's like if it's flourishing it's it's vibrant it's full of life it's it's growing it's getting sun it's getting all the nourishment that it needs to kind of be the best flower that it can be and that's that's the same kind of idea of like flourishing or eudaimonia for a human being right is it's um we are nurturing the parts of ourselves that are necessary to be in the process of kind of becoming our best self so as a, as a human being, we kind of have this, we have this life, this passion, this vibrancy, um, this, this energy to us. And that's something that you can experience in times of happiness or in times of unhappiness. So uh, let's say you're going through your life and everything's going really well. You know, you're, you're experiencing success in your job, your relationships are going great, like your health is good you would generally think of those times as like a happy time. And sometimes when everything's going well, that can actually be the time where you're kind of like neglecting taking care of yourself or like growing as a human being because everything's going so well. You're not, you're not being introspective. You're not really reflecting. You're just kind of going through the motions. And I find that, you know, most of my most transformative periods have been periods that I would consider relatively dark in my life. Like times when I was really going through things, when things were hard, when I just experienced a big failure or a big setback. And that kind of caused me to to step back and look at things and figure out how I can change the trajectory of my life or I can change what I'm doing as a human being to kind of make myself better. And I, I think that's why the important or that I think that's why it's so important to reflect on 
not necessarily asking yourself like, oh, am I happy or like shooting to be happy? Because happiness will come and go based on circumstances that are beyond your control. Um, but instead to focus on personal growth because you can grow when everything's great and you can grow when everything is you know relatively terrible. Um, it, it's a much more robust kind of like view set to, to live your life by, right? Because you're, you're less focused on how you feel and you're more focused on, I guess, the process of kind of becoming better. Let me ask a question to get not necessarily three hacks to, to flourishing in the modern day, but to get a practical, if we can, like you've been, um, doing a little bit of research. It's like your whole adult life. You've been in Brazilian jujitsu. I'm assuming if, if someone comes in and is new to it, you know, there's maybe a couple foundational moves. There's like a starting point. Could we think about flourishing that way? Are does there anything come to mind as one or two foundational things to maybe move closer to a flourishing life? I think so. And I think when I, when I think about the starting point of new knowledge acquisition, I, I think about this a lot. I think that the key component to personal growth is realizing that you just like, you, you don't know anything. Like we, we don't know anything. Um, people come in, like I'll use jujitsu as an example, since you brought it up. Um, People come into jujitsu all the time. They're like, oh, I'm a wrestler. Uh, you know, I, I play D1 football. I'm strong. Like people have this idea and this, this is like a, a male driven ego thing, right? Because most of the people who are coming into jujitsu are men predominantly. There are women, but it's predominantly men. And we have this idea that like the way that we fight or how good we are at fighting is it's like how much of a man we are, right? But it's it's really not. It's just, it's a skill that you practice like anything else. If you practice basketball all the time, you're going to be very good at basketball, right? If you never play basketball, you're going to be terrible at it. And most of the time. Um, and that's kind of how it is in jujitsu, right? Except jujitsu is infinitely complex. Um, until you've actually done jujitsu and I don't know if you ever have before or not, but it is okay. (laughs) Anyone who's gone to one class enrolled, realizes that it's like a totally different world. Like the, the amount of skill that someone can acquire in this kind of sport is insane. Like it's insane how much someone can dominate you regardless of how big or strong or athletic or how many years of wrestling you have just, just with skill and knowledge acquisition. But it's like the very first step to getting better at jujitsu or getting better to anything is realizing like, I don't know anything. I need to come in. And I need to be a student. And once you do that, once you let your ego down, once you say like, you know what? I can't fight. You know, like I, I'm not good at jujitsu. Like my natural kind of qualities of my strength or my intelligence or whatever are not going to help me here. The only way that I'm going to get better is if I remove my ego. And if I go into this and treat it as if I need to learn something every single day that I'm here. And once you do that, you will start to get better at jujitsu. You'll begin to flourish. Um, and it's the same thing I think in life, right? If you're going through life and you feel like I know everything I need, like I got everything that I need, I've got it all figured out. That's where that, that's where you kind of stop growing. Um, all the way back to Socrates. I I know you're familiar with Socrates. I know you got a, um, strong kind of philosophy background, but you know, you go back to that story where he's on trial in Athens and, the Oracle of Delphi comes up and basically tells his friend that Socrates is the wisest man in Athens. And he's here on trial defending himself in front of these people. And he's using it as a story to illustrate that he he's not so full of himself. Right. And he tells them, look, like the Oracle says, I'm the wisest man in Athens. So I immediately go set out to disprove the Oracle because this Oracle has got to be wrong. I'm not that wise. I don't know anything. And he goes to the politicians and realizes that the politicians are, very eloquent. They can make everyone think that they know a lot, but they really don't. And then he goes out to the poets and he realizes that the poets don't really know anything. They're just kind of writing from emotional inspiration. And 
the merchants are really, really good at business, but they don't know much about life or they don't have much wisdom. And he realizes that he is the most wise simply because he realizes how unwise he is. Um, and I, I don't know. I just I think that's the starting point is realizing how little you know and just opening yourself to to new learning, to new perspectives. That that's what sets it all off. I love it. It's um to me I think of that as a view and belief, as we were talking about uh, a bit back, of something that shapes the way that you're navigating the world. I like in Zen how the use the the phrase beginner's mind. But uh, it comes up in every tradition. Maybe it's said a little bit, little bit differently, but it's all the same concept of being an an important view and belief. But let me ask about. It's not that you don't know anything. How do we cultivate a mindset where we're never really finished? You know, we never really know everything like I'm, I'm imagining regardless of what belt you're at there are, are very few people and you know and maybe you only realize this if you become pretty skilled in a particular thing but pick the 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 discipline you never know everything you get to a certain point I'm assuming you've been doing to stick with the jujitsu thing for a long time I'm imagining that you still see the path is there's very much still ahead of you in, in the way of, of things that you can learn. Yeah, for sure. And there's, <clears throat> I think there's like steps to it. It's like the first step is you, you think you know everything and then you hit a brick wall and you realize that you don't know anything. And that causes you to start looking and then you start thinking that you've got things figured out and then you kind of hit another wall and then you realize that, you, you're like, wow, this, this just never ends. Like I thought I had things figured out, but now it just never ends. And then it's kind of like it, the journey restarts. Um, and that happened for me in jujitsu, right? As um, I'm, I mean, I'm a black belt. I've been training 13, 14 years. And um, I'll tell you when I got my black belt, I never felt like more of a beginner and more exposed because when I was a brown belt, I could roll with the black belt. And if I got tapped out or if I got beat, in my mind, I'm like, well, I'm a brown belt. It's, it's totally okay to get beaten because he's a black belt. I'm supposed to get beaten. But then I got a black belt and now I'm like, okay, well now I can't get tapped out by other brown belts and I need to be better because all the other black belts are beating me. And so it's like, when I got my black belt, I had this new motivation. Like I was a white belt all over again. Cause I'm like, I feel like I'm in the bottom 10% of black belts and I want to be in the top, you know, 20% of black belts, which I'm probably not even there, but, um, there, there's levels like th there are black belts out there that would come into my gym and beat me as if I was a white belt that I, I'd never trained a day in my life. So, mm -hmm. you know, at black belt, you, you start to realize how wide this expanse of, of knowledge really is. And it just, it, it's like an infinitely deep rabbit hole. It just, it, it never ends. You can always learn more. You can always improve. You can always hone those skills. And it, until you know it just enough to realize how complex it is, you'll never appreciate how infinitely complex things are, right? Like a, that's, you got to know a little bit to realize how much more there is to know. For someone that's not interested in, in getting on the mat and, and doing any sort of martial arts, like how do we find some of these humbling experiences that, you know, allow us to see reality in, in daily life. Is there anything that comes to mind or, or has helped you along the path? Um, I would say like the, the two things that kind of come to mind would be one is like trying to be conscious of when you think you really know something, like when you really think something is right, trying to be conscious of that and trying to kind of like second guess yourself. So like I, I can give an example here of, maybe your political belief, right? Like, let's say you have a certain political leaning on it. I don't know. I, I don't even want to, I don't want to pick like something hot topic and like get anyone triggered. But like, for example, like abortion, right? Like, let's say you really believe that you, you're just right on abortion. Like when you start feeling that way, if you're genuinely a curious individual, you should start researching the other side of your belief. 
Um, you know, so if you really believe that abortion is just wrong in all cases, you know, maybe you should start reading, like pick up a couple books on, you know, someone who's defending the right to choose, right. Or, or vice versa, whichever side you find yourself on. I'm not advocating a certain stance, right. But, um, if you really think you know something, you really think you believe it, try to understand the other side because it, at very least it's going to make you better able to defend your viewpoint. Um, but you know, you could really learn something and you could realize that maybe things aren't as black and white as you thought, like maybe things are a lot more gray. And I think that that is very true of things, right? I think certainty is very difficult to attain. Um, when you start to understand things, you start to realize how, convoluted and how like ambiguous things truly are. And aside from questioning your beliefs, I would say the other thing is like, put yourself in a situation to do something challenging and fail. Um, There's nothing more humbling than going out to do something, whether it's you think it's attainable for yourself or not and failing and, and realizing that, you know, there's so much more to learn, right? That's in jujitsu. I found that when I would go out and I would win a tournament or I would do really well, I didn't really feel like I learned that much because I was just excited about winning. I was excited about like winning this competition and getting a gold medal. It was the ones where I went out and I lost that really motivated me because I'm like, I I really, when you lose, it's painful and it makes you want to kind of look at things and figure out how you can extract like a new lesson. So I think those two things, right? Like challenging yourself on things that you believe firmly in just by understanding the other side and also putting yourself in a situation that, you know, you can fail and challenge yourself, do something that's maybe a little bit out of your reach. And connected to that, I, if I could ask you one question, it would probably be something on the topic of self limiting beliefs. I I once heard someone say, it's like we, um, we overestimate what we can accomplish in two weeks and, drastically underestimate what we can accomplish in in two years. Um, you know, how would you recommend, and you talk a lot about this in, in the book, which I thought was really inspiring, about maybe cultivating beliefs, belief in oneself to, to grow and learn. Because we can see ourselves, it seems like, as fixed entities, you know, whether we are completely conscious of it or not. I think something that I tap into, and this is really simple, um, maybe overly simple, but something I tap into a lot when I'm feeling overwhelmed, when I feel like maybe I can't do something or I feel like something is, I've bitten off more than I can chew. I just always remind myself that the person that's like, there's a person that's doing that thing. So let's say you're starting jujitsu, right? Like if I'm starting jujitsu and I'm a white belt, there's a guy there that's a black belt, right? And if he can do it or she can do it, I can do it. And that that is so simple to me, but it really reminds me, it's like every single person that has achieved anything has a story about when they started and they were just like you. And they went through a process and, and they got to where they are. Now, can I go beat Usain Bolt? No. Like no matter how much I train, no matter how much I work, it, it's not going to happen for me. There, there are limits to, to what you're going to be able to accomplish because of genetics, because of like what, um, I guess like what assets you have at your disposal in order to like attain a certain thing. So that there are going to be some limits, but the limits are, are so minimal, right? Like, I mean, we're, we're capable of so much more than what we think. And, just anytime I see someone doing something, I know that I can do it because I, I've done it. You know, I, I started out as a white belt in jiu-jitsu and I, I got to a very high level and I, you know, I got my black belt. I told myself I wanted to write a book and I did it. And, you know, if you just look at someone else that did it, I mean, you realize, like, especially if you start digging into the, the person's life, you start reading a little bit of like, biographies or autobiographies, you you start to see how all these people that we look up to that are heroes, they're just normal human beings. Like, you know, Marcus Aurelius was just, he was just a normal human being. He, he ate food and he, he pooped it out, you know, like he washed himself in, in water in the morning, you know, he, 
he had things that he worried about. He had things that he had anxiety about. He probably said mean things to people. He had people say mean things to him, right? He talks about that. Um, you'll find the same thing of every single person that you look up to, every single person that's an example of success. They're just they're a normal human being, and they didn't give up, and they maybe got a little bit of a lucky break somewhere, and they just they kept going, and they got there. And I just, I just like to remind myself, if, if they can do it, I can do it. And the, the same is true for anybody out there listening to this. I love it. I think it's an inspiring message. But for some reason, you know, there might be someone listening, and maybe I'm, I'm wrongly assuming that maybe they don't need to say that or write that to themselves or remind themselves of it. But you mentioned Marcus Aurelius. He wrote nearly the very same thing to himself, you know, something along those lines. If, if, if someone does it, see it to be possible in your own mind. This is someone, a Roman emperor is probably writing this later in life. Maybe he's in his sixties. He's had decades upon decades of great education and he's reminding himself of that in his personal journal. So if he's doing it, there's probably some benefit, even if we don't necessarily feel we need that reminder that it uh it can't it can't hurt and you you write in the book about this there's always a chance for a new start and maybe that connects with this renaissance and in rebirth i i love this idea because so often it seems like we can look in the rearview mirror and see actions of the past and think about that and it maybe gets in the way of of stepping towards and getting on the path of whatever it may be. How do you think about, you know, looking in the rearview mirror? Are you holding that loosely? How would you recommend someone to think about past mistakes and, and moving forward? I think that it's it's important to learn from your mistakes. And I think in order to kind of learn from your mistakes or to look at those things and move forward, you, you have to be able to look at them and realize what you did wrong. I think that the problem is um, holding on to too much guilt. I think that guilt is really, can be really damaging, right? Like let's, let's say you're a, like a recovering alcoholic or something, right? There, there's a point in your 12 step program where you have to reach out to all the people that you hurt and you have to say, you're sorry. And you have to ask for forgiveness. And, you know, maybe they forgive you. Maybe they don't because they're like, well, you've told me sorry for the same thing a hundred times. Like you're, you know, you're, you're a POS, get out of here. You know, I'm just, I'm not, uh, I'm not interested in hearing your, your hundredth apology to me. Right. But if you really want to move forward, if, and you're always, you know, I know the thing, like you, they say you're always an alcoholic, right. Which i I don't know. I don't know if I fully agree with it, but they, they got a system. So I'm not going to argue with them too much. Um, at some point you got to let go of the guilt and you got to say like, all right, I did these things and today I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be a different person. And it, it takes a continued commitment, right? Like every day you have to wake up and you have to say like, I'm committed to still be this person that I'm deciding to be. You can't let yourself like slip back into old habits, but you, you do have to move forward. Um, like I'll, I'll give, I'll give a very personal example. This, this is like the first time I'm ever talking about this on, uh, in public, right? It's, it's very personal, but, um, I have been like in my relationships, I, I've kind of been like a, a lifelong like cheater. I, I get into relationships and when things get tough, instead of just breaking them off or instead of like confronting things, I tend to run from my emotions and I, try to find an escape in like cheating with someone else. And um, earlier this year, I went through a really tough breakup. And part of the reason that it was so tough is because I confessed to my ex-partner what I did. And that was really, really hard. It, it really hit me because I had to face what I had done and who I had been. All the times before I could kind of get away with it. I could compartmentalize. I could stuff it down um, and seeing the pain that I inflicted to someone, someone that, you know, I had cared about that I'd spent a lot of time with. Um, that was really, really, really painful for me. It was really, really hurtful. I still have a lot of guilt about it. I have a lot of regrets. Um, 
but I'll tell you, it's, it's realizing my mistake and feeling that guilt and feeling what I did that has made me commit to never doing that to another human being again. And it's really sad. And I feel really guilty that I had to put someone through that to learn that lesson. But all I can do, like, because I can't change what I've done in the past, all I can do is commit as a new human being to say that, like, I will never do that to another human being again, because I I see what I did, you know, and I I think that it's, um, even though I still feel guilty, I I have to kind of move beyond that guilt to say that I'm learning from this and I'm extracting these lessons and I'm going to move forward as a better human being. Hmm. Well, I love it. And I appreciate you sharing that. You know, I think that's a powerful lesson. How do you think about on the same topic of continually growing and and learning while at the same time, you know, there's this thing where we can, it seems like get an obsession for self-improvement. I don't know. Sometimes I think about the the growing and, and learning, and we've talked about a, a lot today in, in terms of views and beliefs and all this type of stuff. But there is this thing of like an obsession around self-improvement. It's like growing and learning to achieve perfectionism or, or, or something like that, which is just not possible. Do you ever think about that of, of navigating that, that tightrope or that, that paradox at all? I feel like, so Aristotle talks a lot of times about the middle path. Right? I'm sure you, you're familiar with it. You've heard like, it's the idea that, you know, a lot of times the the best path is kind of the path in between two extremes, right? So um, an example that you'll hear from Aristotle a lot is, um, is courage, right? So a lot of people think of courage and they think that like there's courage and then on the opposite end there's uh, cowardice, right? But like actually courage falls in between. You have cowardice on one extreme. So it's like the person who won't do anything. They're, they're afraid of everything. They, they won't take any risks. They um, live you know, too, too fearfully. And then you have courage in the middle. Courage is the middle path, right? And then on the other extreme, you have brashness, right? So you have the guy that just like with no plan, just you know, there's a battle and there's no front line. There's no one around him. And he just picks up his sword and he just runs into this horde and gets killed immediately, right? That's brashness. You know, so you have cowardice, per, a person that avoids confrontation or avoids difficulty way too strongly. And then you have the, the brash person who just runs into it foolheartedly and doesn't have a plan, doesn't prepare himself, right? Like the person who's courageous, like, yeah, they're going to run into battle um, when it makes sense. But a courageous person actually knows that sometimes you got to retreat. You, you got to call a retreat so you can regather your forces so you can go back in and you can um, try to do better in this next battle. So I think that that is the line that we have to kind of continuously walk, right? Is like the line between, okay, the journey never ends and we have to continuously learn, but also on the other end, you have to remember the things that were taught by, you know, people like the Stoics or people like Epicurus where, you know, it's, it's not about how much we have or it's not about what we do. It's about looking within to kind of find uh, content and a happiness with kind of where we are and who we are, right? Because if you're always chasing, it's like there's never going to be enough, right? At some point, you have to be able to look and just say, you know what? Like, I'm happy with who I am today. Like, I accept who I am. I'm happy with who I am. But I'm going to continue to try to improve. I'm going to continue to to take more out of life. Because I think if you if you're not able to accept and kind of be happy with who you are and where you are at this moment, um, that can be kind of destructive, right? Cause you you feel like you're not enough. You feel like you don't have enough. Um, and it's, I think that, you know, maybe we have to, you have to kind of be like a, like a pinball, like a pinball that's like bouncing back and forth between, between the kind of two extremes, right? There's some, sometimes you're going to go too far to one way, Sometimes you're going to go too far to the other, but you're always kind of reminding yourself and trying to pull yourself back to that middle way. That's well said, Shane. Um, I, I have to say one of my 
favorite quotes from Seneca. The listeners might be tired of hearing it, but uh, talks about his progress towards wisdom being that he's become a better friend to himself, which sometimes we just don't always connect with self-improvement and, and growing and learning. We don't necessarily always connect the dots to being a, a better friend to ourselves, but so important. I love how you explain that. Uh, as we start to wrap up, though, I do want to touch on a, ch- a chapter in the book of, of just meditating on our mor- mortality, memento mori. Um, and now that I think going back to the first question I asked of, you know, what might be one of the or a difference between a book on philosophy and a self-help, this might be one chapter that doesn't show up in the self-help book of of meditating on our mortality, but it seems to be such an important thing. It literally is in every wisdom tradition there is, highlights this. How do you, how do you see that and how might you recommend someone to, to think about this practice? Yeah. So the, you know, Memento Mori, right? The, the, remembrance or the act of remembering that that you're going to die right it's a very scary thing um especially if you've never thought about it right to think about your death um for me the idea of death is is very very motivating i try to think about it a lot i try to remind myself i mean i know the the listeners aren't going to be able to you know see it but i got the memento mori still life there on the wall you know um it's what I look at when I wake up in the morning and it's like, it's just a reminder, right? That the fact that our time is limited, that it's not guaranteed is it's so motivating for me. It's like I could, and I I always think about this, right? I, I get off this podcast with you. I go to get my groceries. I get hit by a drunk driver, you know, at one o'clock in the afternoon and I'm, I'm dead. I'm gone. Um, what would I want to be doing? You know, how would I want to live my life if I knew that was going to happen? How much more potency would the next hour of my life have? You know, how much tighter would I hug my loved ones? You know, how much more effort would I put into, you know, the things that I'm doing or the things that I'm putting my life in or putting energy into in my life? The the fact that you are dying, you know, because realistically, like we are dying, right? We're you know, hopefully we're dying slowly. Hopefully we have a lot of years left, but we just, we don't know. Um, I don't know that that just hangs over me so much. Every, every time I think about it, I get, I get a new exhilaration for life to just make the most of the moment. Um, and our culture today, I talk about this a little bit in the book too, but it's like, we're, most people are living so far removed from death and, yeah, like we, we hear about like mass shootings on TV and things like that. And um, it moves people, but it's kind of more like, oh, well, that will never happen to me. You know, like, oh, it would never happen to me, but like it's terrible. And they're kind of feeling empathy for these other people. But it's like death, death will happen to you. Not It's not a matter of like if, it's a matter of when, right? Um, that should just, that should be a reminder for everyone, right? Just thinking about death, like just, make, make the most of every moment. And it doesn't, doesn't mean you have to go out and like change the world or do this like massive thing. It doesn't mean you have to have this huge project to have value for your life. Right. It can just be, it can just be given an extra like hug and kiss to your kids or your, you know, your significant other it can be just like helping somebody out that needs something. Cause you're like, man, that, you know, that this could be that person's last moment or it could be my last moment. I think just when, when you live that way, I, I think you live a little bit more authentically. I think you, get out of the the grind and the day to day where you're just kind of like surviving and you, you think a little bit more about like how this moment can have a, a deeper impact on yourself and others. I love it. I find it to be such a powerful practice as well. I have a reminder kind of staring, staring down at me right, right on the wall. Um, but I wonder as I've, as I've talked about this and with some of the listeners, it doesn't, you know, necessarily resonate with everybody. I do think there is somewhat of a, a middle way, as you were just talking about a moment ago, when it comes to this, you're not necessarily just meditating on mortality 
in this reoccurring thought pattern and, and just staying there. It's like you're meditating on mortality and on life and on the fact that you're, you know, breathing right now and that you have agency and opportunity to move forward through the world. So there is some sort of middle way for any listeners that are maybe new to new to it. But uh, you, you write about it beautifully in, in the book, and I, I highly recommend people pick it up. Appreciate it. I was going to say, I mean, there, there's definitely two extremes on the, the meditation of kind of like mortality too, right? Because you have like on one extreme, if you're like, oh, well, I'm going to, I could die like this minute. You could use that. And I talk about this a little bit in the book too. Like you could use that as an excuse to like, all right, I'm going to go out and party it up. You know, I'm going to make the most of this moment, go skydive, yeah. like my, road, ride my motorcycle hundred miles an hour. Like, you know, you, you could live that way. Um, and that's, you know, maybe a little bit into the brashness category that we talked about, but you could also, um, you know, you could focus on death too much and you, you get to the point where you're like, Oh, I'm going to die. Like, I'm, I'm so depressed. Like nothing has meaning. Like what, what's the point of all this? If I, you know, so again, you, you gotta, you gotta find that middle path in between the, the two or like you can tap into that kind of like vibrancy and that, that fervency for life, um, without going too far into the into the darkness at the same time. Yeah. Well, this has been great, Shane. Again, I, I'm, I'm grateful that we were able to connect. Again, for the listeners, a reminder, the book is Renaissance Wisdom, How to Flourish in the Modern Day. I recommend all the listeners pick it up. Um, where do you point people interested in learning more about you and connecting with your work in the world? I've got the, the websites up. Uh, it's renaissance-wisdom.com. Uh, make sure to put the hyphen in there. Otherwise, you're, you're not going to end up there. Um, if you get on Amazon, you can look up the book as well. Uh, Renaissance Wisdom, How to Flourish in the Modern Day. It's on ebook, hard copy, and uh, paperback. Um, you can also look me up on Instagram. I'm at uh, Renaissance Wisdom. Uh, you know, basically, through there, I mean, there, there's a link on there. I've got a link tree, so you can check out the website. You can read more about me. You can check out my author bio. Uh, you know, any, anybody that's interested in the book or if you have any, you know, questions, I try to be very responsive. So, um, if you have any questions about the book before you buy it or something, even if you just want to ask the author direct, you know, ask me, I'll do my best to get back to you as soon as possible. So love it. And we'll, we'll link it all in the show notes so you can easily check it out. Shane Sorensen. Uh, thank you so much for coming on in search of wisdom. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.